1420 WBSM presents Spooky South Coast with your hosts Tim Weisberg, Matt Costa, and Evan Russo. And good evening, everybody. Welcome to this potentially stormy night. Uh, any minute now, it'll probably start snowing and we'll be snowed in here at WBSM. But, hey, we're prepared for that because we've got some great guests in the studio and some good paranormal talk here on Spooky South Coast. Started off by throwing out the phone numbers to everybody, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500 for Wear Him in the Cape. If you want to share with us your stories, your theories, your paranormal tales, or weird happenings. And uh, tonight we have a, a special treat. We have uh, two guests in the studio with us. We're going to be talking about the mysterious hotspot of uh, Massachusetts paranormal activity known as the Bridgewater Triangle. And uh, that area extends from Abington down into Freetown, over to Lakeville, and it encompasses uh, a, a lot of the surrounding towns there. So, you know, New Bedford people, South Coast people, you've probably traveled through there tons of times, had all kinds of experience you'd like to call in and share with us. So once again, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. The lines are open. Just call any time, and uh, we'll, we'll get into the discussion here with our guests. Our first guest sitting here with us is Chris Pittman. He's been an investigator of UFOs and paranormal phenomena since 1993. In 1998, he began focusing on the Bridgewater Triangle and has conducted many investigations in the area. He lives in Franklin and is the state historian for the Massachusetts chapter of the Mutual UFO Network, the world's largest UFO study organization. Since 1999, he has maintained a website dedicated to the investigation of UFOs and the paranormal in Massachusetts. How are you doing tonight, Chris? Great. I'm doing great. And, uh, and we also have with us Aaron Keju, who is uh, a documentary filmmaker and freelance videographer and a Dartmouth resident, right? That's correct. And he graduated from Fitchburg State College in May of 2005 with a Bachelor's of Science in Communications Media. He owns and operates Big Operations Productions, a company responsible for freelance videography and the production of documentary films. He's also a full-time video editor at RJ Lachance, an ad agency in East Providence. Now, both these guys have some websites that they run, too. We have links to them uh, up on our site, SpookySouthCoast.com. So if any time during the interview, if you have a computer handy, check out their sites. There's a wealth of information there. How are you doing tonight? Fantastic. Doing great. Okay. Now, now, Chris, you run this website dedicated to the Bridgewater Triangle. How did you come about discovering uh, what had been going on there for all these years? Well, why don't you start off by telling some people, telling our people what some of these uh, occurrences have been? Well, uh, what's really amazing about the Bridgewater Triangle is that uh, unlike most communities which have one or two interesting legends or uh, unique paranormal types of uh, things going on there, the Bridgewater Triangle area has virtually every type of paranormal phenomena that's ever been documented. There's a, a large number of uh, haunted houses and, and haunted areas. Uh, UFOs are seen there frequently, sometimes low-flying, uh, close encounters. There's been cattle mutilations. There's been all kinds of strange animals from a Bigfoot-type creature to giant snakes and birds. really runs the gamut of uh, pretty much anything that you could expect to experience that can't be explained. And, and Aaron, you actually went out uh, with a film crew and some paranormal investigators to check out the area. And is this uh, something, how, how did you come about the, uh, the information? Well, I was actually uh, looking for a topic for a documentary film, and I was researching on the Internet, uh, Spidergate Cemetery in Worcester. Mm -hmm. And I just happened to stumble across some uh, information on the Bridgewater Triangle, and it brought me immediately to uh, Chris's website. And things started flying from there. I started developing a script and just went ahead and did the film. 
Now, now, Chris, your site is, is pretty much the Internet resource for anything to do with the Bridgewater Triangle. There's some other smaller sites around, but not with the wealth of information that you have. How did you compile all of that information? Well, um, I, really, I've been interested in UFOs my whole life. And starting in 1993, I became active in investigating UFO sightings. I uh, joined some of the local and national UFO organizations, started getting out there and talking to people. It wasn't really until uh, 1997 or 1998 I first heard about the Bridgewater Triangle and started to look into it because I was interested at first in the UFO sightings. And uh, I was blown away quickly by what I was finding. So uh, I started to travel down there regularly and met with some of the people who I'd been reading about. And uh, I set the website up in 1999. It was certainly the first uh, you know, imprint that the Bridgewater Triangle had made on the Internet. And I started getting tons of emails from people right away. Even now, people uh, who know that I'm interested in UFOs and the paranormal, they'll tell me, oh, geez, one time years ago, I was in the woods, I saw this thing, I can't explain it, and I'll say, where did that happen? And it seems like more often than not, it's in the Bridgewater Triangle, no matter where I go. It's amazing. And uh, I'm sure a lot of our listeners out there have had similar uh, experiences. Feel free to call in and discuss them with, uh, with Chris and Aaron, who are both uh, very knowledgeable in the subject. Now, uh, let's, let's start at the beginning here. Uh, when was the first actual sighting of anything paranormal i know it goes back to almost colonial times it goes back definitely to colonial times uh well i guess the uh really it goes back to pre-colonial times with the native americans that lived in this area they uh they had strange legends about the hockamock swamp which is a huge swamp that takes up much of the area that's kind of centered upon bridgewater itself and they uh, they named it the Hockamock Swamp, which some people say means a place where evil spirits dwell. And legend has it that uh, despite the good hunting in that area, they wouldn't go in there for any reason. And when the colonists got here, there are very strange reports and legends about things like yellow days, where the entire sky would appear yellow instead of blue for a day. Uh, but it wasn't until 1760 that there was a documented single occurrence, which was a UFO sighting. Uh, I believe it was uh, some people on a horse and buggy, and they witnessed a uh, low-flying object. This, of course, in the days before airplanes of any kind. And that's actually the first thing that's been handed down that we can actually put a date to and a name. And, and over the years, uh, I know that you've both uh, talked with a, a gentleman out there by the name of Joseph DeAndrade, who is uh, he's definitely a character. Uh, anybody who's had the benefit of seeing Aaron's film knows that. And he brings into it a, a different aspect of, of another uh, paranormal sighting that's happened out in the swamp, uh, that of Bigfoot. Uh, when about did the Bigfoot sightings originate? Well, there were, uh, there were Bigfoot sightings that were kind of interlaced with the general... Uh, you know, atmosphere of, of what was going on in that area probably forever. I've heard uh, stories dating back decades of footprints, uh, strange sounds heard in the woods. But I think it wasn't until the 1970s that things really started to pick up. And uh, by 1973, there was a spate of well-publicized sightings. And uh, people who believe in Bigfoot, believe that Bigfoot is an animal that lives out there in the woods, they speculate that it's because the... Uh, Bigfoot was able to stay away from people until, you know, increased building and roads going through the area around the 1970s caused Bigfoot to start interacting with people more. And, and Aaron, uh, when you guys were out there, I know uh, uh, Mr. DeAndre showed you where he had had the original sighting, and uh, he was very animated about what it was. He said something told him in the back of his mind to turn around and look. And um, 
it, it seems like in that area, it almost lends itself to that type of a feeling where, you know, you think that there's something lurking around the corner. Is that the type of feeling that you get when you're out there? Well, I went with him to the pond that he said he saw at Bigfoot. It's actually not too far from his house. It's called uh, Claybanks 1, and there's another pond next to it called Claybanks 2. And he took me there, and he told me he was with a friend of his, and it was the winter of 78, and there was snow on the ground, and there was no, no leaves on the tree, so apparently it was really easy to see. And he looked across the pond, and he saw Bigfoot. But prior to that, he said that a voice in his head told him to turn around and look, and when he did, he saw it. And uh, when he took me into the woods there, um, I wouldn't say there was a feeling of being watched or anything like that or uh, any kind of a supernatural feeling. Um, but I could definitely see... I mean, it's kind of a remote pond deep in the woods, and I could definitely see someone seeing something there. Now, let's let's talk about some of the other stories people have told over the years. Uh, uh, Chris, you're probably a little bit more into this kind of, into this stuff, but it seems like uh, almost like you said, any type of paranormal activity that can happen has happened there, uh, from you know these mythical creatures of legend to uh, even as as Aaron's film touches upon uh, some demonic activity, some uh, satanic activity, uh, even some ritualistic murders. It's true, um, really. Uh it's it's pretty amazing that all that stuff happens in this one small area. Joe DeAndre deserves a lot of credit for being the only person who uh, was really on the ground doing investigations and writing down these reports uh, for many years. Uh, the Bridgewater Triangle got its name from a paranormal investigator named Lauren Coleman, who's a very prolific author about these types of things. He wrote about uh, he wrote about the area in 1978 in his book Mysterious America, and he touched upon the UFOs, upon the so-called Bigfoot creature, and uh, even some of the unexplained murders. But after that, I don't think there was any uh, serious investigation into the area. Uh, and it was really Joseph DeAndrade who was acting more as a folklorist than anything else, mm -hmm. who wrote down a lot of what he was hearing. He uh, advertised uh, for years in bookstores, putting up flyers, and people would contact him. He'd write down their stories. So really it's thanks to him uh, that a lot of the things we're going to be talking about today were recorded and that we can talk about them. And again, uh, there there are links to the to uh, Chris's website on uh, SpookySouthCoast.com, and on his website you can check out the map of the Triangle area, the map of the Hockamock Swamp, and even some photographs, uh, some evidence of some strange happenings out there, uh, including there's a, a power plant out there, and I use that in, in quotation marks because nobody's quite sure what the uh, history of that building is. I'm, I'm glad you gave me the opportunity to talk about this. The power plant is something that fascinates people in such a way, and... Uh, I tell you, I get I get more emails about that power plant than anything else from my website. The uh, I I've never done any research to try to find out what that building was, and as far as I know, all the local people that I talk to they refer to it as the power plant. It doesn't really look like a power plant on the inside. It's a huge concrete building with. Uh, a really spooky look to it. It's got big openings in the walls. There's a lot of strange graffiti in there. It's obvious that uh, people have partied in there from time to time. Uh, the thing about the power plant, well, I, I should say that I first started hearing about it mostly from teenagers, and it was hard for me to accept some of the claims that I was hearing because mm -hmm. they were so strange. After I started going there, I began to be a little bit more receptive to the idea that there was something going on there. It did have a strange feel to it, and the... Uh, the land, the grim landscape of kind of a brushy, scrubby waste that surrounds this building, I guess it could lend itself to these type of uh, of stories. Now, the power plant today 
the land in front of it is being used as a parking lot for tractor trailers. When I went there in 1998, 1999, and 2000, it was was vacant. And I actually found some some hair that I first believed to be uh, evidence of Bigfoot. Mm -hmm. Later on, it turned out to be probably coyote droppings, uh, you know, mundanely. But now I don't think it's really possible for anybody to go there and conduct any kind of investigation. A lot of people see the pictures of the way it used to look on my website and want to go check it out for themselves. But it's been, it's been kind of developed, as a lot of stuff in the area has been. I'm not sure if the building itself is in use or not, but the land in front of it certainly is. Well, we try to put out a disclaimer, too, to uh, those listening. And again, we want to hear from you at 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. Maybe you've had some experiences in that area, or maybe you've had some similar experiences outside of the area. We'd like to hear about it. But we do try to put out a disclaimer to those listening that we don't want you to go out investigate a lot of these areas on your own um, first and foremost a lot of the the paranormal activity we talk about on the show happens on private property or state property that's not open to the public and also you know there's a general problem of you could go out there at night and get lost yeah. and it could be lost in the woods for days and and not find your way out so especially in the uh, hockamock swap on the freetown state forest those two places especially i could definitely see someone getting lost i well, wouldn't go there at night and a place, you know, like the Bermuda Triangle is famous for being a, almost like a atmospheric and a climatic anomaly where there's all kinds of crazy things that happen in there where, you know, compasses don't work properly and navigation equipment doesn't work properly. So if this is a similar type area, you know, even just to the general sense of you can get yourself into the woods and, you know, you're a, you're a swamp Yankee, you can get yourself out of it. But an area that has a paranormal center might disorient you enough that, you know, you can't find your way out. Yeah, on a similar note, I would actually caution anybody against uh, paranormal investigation really in general. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I've found in my experience is, is that you can get so deeply into it that you find uh, that things start to interact with you in a sense, and it can be very, very negative. So uh, especially for young people out there, I'm, I'm fortunate. I feel fortunate that uh, I didn't experience some of the negative things that some of my colleagues in this field have experienced, but it's, uh, it can be really scary. And it's not something that people should be getting involved with without reading a lot of books first. Well, part of the problem, too, is the popularity of television programs and even radio programs such as this gets, pe- it gets into people's minds that, you know, hey, I, I want to go out there and check it out for myself. The problem is, is there's not a lot of uh, scientific teaching going on out there. Now we're starting to see... You know, a lot of classes being taught on the proper procedures of how to do it. But, I mean, even last week we had a, a gentleman call in who started his own paranormal group, and we will have him on as a guest in, in a future uh, edition. But he's going out there with the intent of finding documented results. And uh, we tried to tell him, well, you, know, you can't go out there and look for results. You have to go out and look for experiences. Yeah, it's, it's dangerous. I had uh, two colleagues who told me that they were really close to blowing the whole lid off the UFO mystery. They had uncovered something that was so shocking that it, when it was finally revealed, it was going to change the face of uh, the UFO study field, and they actually died the next month. Uh, they died in New Hampshire in June of exposure. It was really unknown. Their bodies mm-hmm. were found uh, uh, in the White Mountains. Uh, similarly, I had another colleague who was actually, uh, and when I met him, he was a very sane, very normal guy. And uh, studying this stuff, something happened to him, and he wound up being institutionalized. He believed at one point that uh, government agents were getting into his car at night and emptying his ashtray. It was unbelievable. I mean, and, and that paranoia, 
I mean, it can affect your life across the board to, to the point where you can't even function in your normal day because you're so worried about uh, Big Brother watching, you know. Uh, Aaron, when you went out there to make this film and you, you told people, you know, you actually went out and spent the night out there with, uh, with uh, Cape and Islands Paranormal Research Society, what did people say to you when you said you're going to go out and spend a night in the woods? Well, I think my mother was probably against it more than anybody else, and she thought I was crazy, and I was, I was like, Mom, I'm going with a bunch of other people. This is going to be okay, and I'm going to be okay. I have my cell phone on me, even though there wasn't much service in the middle of the Hockamock Swamp. But mm-hmm. uh, um, I, my, my girlfriend was a little, a little nervous for me, but she was pretty cool with it. Um, and, but I actually had a lot of support from a lot of other people who are supportive of my filmmaking and thought that it would be a good experience. And uh, although we didn't see anything paranormal and we didn't really experience anything paranormal it wasn't very i mean you did have a feeling that this was not a normal place to be and it was always a feeling that there might be eyes watching you Mm -hmm. and it was very very dark in there and uh it was it was pretty spooky and and as chris said he he warns against people going out and investigating things like this i mean can you understand having been out there and and experienced it yourself you know how this negative activity can occur even if even if you don't experience something it's almost like there's the possibility or the the uh the fear can overtake you a bit well definitely and i mean if someone is going to just go ahead and investigate something like this just make sure if you're going to do it go in a big group or go with a group of people that really know what they're doing like the cape and islands paranormal research society or someone like that who has the equipment and the experience that you're going to come out of there alive All right, we're going to take a quick break right now, and uh, when we come back on the other side, we'll get into some more of the, almost the storytelling aspects of what goes on in the Bridgewater Triangle, some of the strange uh, phenomena people have experienced over the years. And again, we want to hear from you, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500 for Wareham and the Cape. You know, maybe... uh, Maybe your grandmother uh, is is sitting there listening to the show with you, even though she passed away a few years ago. Anything like that. Hey, we want to hear about it. Give us a call. Be back in about one minute. It's a real thing. A radio signal from another world. That's what I call a close encounter. I can't, not as long as the truth is out. All right, and welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, Matt Costa, manning the controls and uh, doing a very fine job, might I add. Uh, Matt, we haven't had a chance to uh, say hello to you tonight. How are you tonight? I'm not doing too bad. You're not not too nervous here? A little spooky. We don't have uh, Uncle Evan here to, to back us up tonight. Sensei. Evan is uh, doing some uh, charity work uh, down at uh, Cobblestone's Tending Bar to raise some money for charity. Uh, I'm not sure if he's going to be back with us next week. We hope so. And uh, But for right now, we have two terrific guests in the studio. Chris Pittman, who runs the web- only website on the Internet where you can find all the information about the Bridgewater Triangle, that mysterious paranormal area around the Hockamock Swamp. And Aaron Keju, who is a documentary filmmaker who went out there and made the film Inside the Bridgewater Triangle. Now, we had uh, an interesting little bumper there uh, dealing with the X-Files and, and UFOs, Chris, and, and that's something that's been your passion for quite a while now. Why don't you talk a little bit about some of your personal experiences? Okay, um, well, uh, I guess uh, I'll talk about something that's kind of frightening that happened to me uh, well in the Bridgewater Triangle area. It's really not something that I've ever discussed in any public forum uh, ever, and I'm hesitant to even tell my friends about it. 
but I'll do it well, for the sake of the show. And well, it's that's not a good thing. Website. That's what Spooky South Coast is all about. We're sure. here to believe whatever you want to tell us. All so. right, this is this is going to stretch the cred- everybody's credibility a little bit, uh, but I but I swear it's true. When I was young and naive, and I thought that uh, someday I could prove that UFOs were aliens from space and that there was a Bigfoot out there, I thought it would be a good idea to go into an area near, uh, kind of in between where Freetown Fall River State Forest is and where Dighton Rock State Park is, pitch a tent and sleep for the night and see if I could find anything interesting. So I went there with uh, my girlfriend at the time, whose name was Jen, and a friend of mine whose name was Jay. We... uh, we had some kind of hairy experiences trying to find a place to camp until uh, we got pulled over by the police. I thought it was all over for us, but uh, the police officer was very familiar with the paranormal legends of the area, and he told me of a place where we could go where people often reported seeing strange lights in the sky. Well, that's a little bit strange that the police would be that helpful. Uh, it was very strange. They tell you to get out. <laughs> that's what I thought. And he said, he said, look, I'll tell you to go, and there's where you to camp, but... Uh, you know, if I catch you camping there, I'm going to have to arrest you, he said with a smile on his face. <laughs> so it was like, well, let's pitch the tent and see what happens. So we pitched the tent. Uh, it was near near a big body of water. And, you know, if I had to go there again today, I wouldn't be able to, and that's just fine with me. My friend Jay and I stayed up while Jen went to sleep in the tent. And we saw a series of lights in the sky. It was very difficult to determine if they were stars or some other... Uh, or a UFO. Mm-hmm. And if that was a sighting that was reported to me, it's a sighting that I would have explained as probably uh, atmospheric phenomena. Ninety percent of the UFO sightings that are reported to me, I'm able to explain. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, was, it was interesting nevertheless. Shortly before we went to sleep, we saw what appeared to be a strange light out on the water. And we saw it very distinctly for maybe two minutes. It looked like maybe there was a boat out there or something. That wasn't really possible. Uh, and then it was gone. But again, there wasn't enough to that sighting that I could say, okay, we've experienced, we've experienced something paranormal here. So we went to sleep. The next morning, we got up, we packed the tent up, and we, pe- we went into the car. And uh, I said to Jen, hey, how'd you sleep? She said, well, you know, Chris, the, uh, the strangest thing happened to me. She said, I, uh, I was out there, I was asleep, and I woke up suddenly. And I heard a buzzing sound that I thought was coming from that what that power station or whatever it was nearby that was kind of making a humming sound all night. And she said, I, I tried to wake you up because the humming, now, humming sound seemed to be getting louder and louder and more intense. And I realized I couldn't move. I was paralyzed, frozen in place. So the humming sound became so intense that it actually felt like there was electricity coursing through my body and I was completely uh, immobilized, and I felt like my whole body was vibrating. At this point, my, all my hair was standing up. I was getting scared out of my mind because I'd heard the exact same narrative description given of people who claim that they've been abducted by aliens. I mean, the exact same terms. I felt like there was electricity coursing through my body. I woke up and I couldn't move. And almost, uh, you know, with my heart in my throat, I said, well, what happened next? She said, you know, I don't remember. And it was, like my, it was like I had ice water in my veins because that's exactly the typical way that these uh, UFO abduction encounter cases generally begin. So I was, I was too scared to tell Jen anything about my theories about what might or might not have happened to her. And, in fact, I, was too, I didn't know enough about this phenomena to even come to a conclusion about it. I was so scared I just kind of shoved it into the back of my mind. Mm-hmm. From that day on... 
Jen's life changed. Uh, I had been given, as a gag, from someone who knew about my interest, a novelty alien mask that I kept in the house. After that day, that mask was the scariest thing in her universe. If I took that mask out, she would go, she would be bouncing off the walls in terror. I had to get rid of it. Similarly, she had always, uh, always slept with the door shut, couldn't sleep with the door open. After that day, she did a full 180 and could only sleep with the door open. These, these things, uh, fear of alien images and a sudden change in someone's sleeping situation are often indicative of, uh, of some kind of UFO close encounter or abduction scenario. Well, I, I never told her what I thought until and uh, we broke up and drifted apart. Two years later, out of nowhere, we started talking again. She got in touch with me and we spent some time together and I asked her if she ever had any dreams about the time that we spent uh, on the Bridgewater Triangle area. She started to tell me dreams about uh, strange figures around her bed, uh, dreams about waking up at night paralyzed and seeing a strange light filling her room. Uh, th this stuff is, is textbook what is described by people who say they've, they've had these experiences. Now, I had at this point been uh, conducting some hypnosis sessions myself where I would, uh, with the help of a trained hypnotherapist in every case, uh, actually regress people with these experiences and try to get them to relive it, to get more information about it. Oftentimes their memories of these onboard UFO encounters are blocked. Now I know better than to try to hypnotize these people, but I was, I was still learning that. What happened? Well, I, I, this is one of, the, one of the experiences that I had uh, that I really didn't like uh, doing the hypnosis. I did the regression. It took about 10 minutes. I, at the end of the regression, I count back from 10 to 1. And when I get to number 1, the person is to begin reliving the experience. But when I hit number 1, about a second elapsed, and she sat bolt upright on the sofa, shouting the word no. I said, oh, um, she was obviously out of hypnotic state. I said, what happened? She said, it was like my, my entire body and mind was just filled with that one word, no. I said, well, that, that's pretty scary. Uh, did, did you remember anything before that happened? Was there anything else? And she said, well, in the, in the split second before I got that reaction, I felt like I was looking at something that was irritating my eyes, which as anyone who's watched Close Encounters of the Third Kind knows is a common thing that's associated with UFO reports mm -hmm. is uh, eye irritation. And after she said that, she looked at me, and her eyes were blood red, and she had tears screaming down her face from, from less than one second of reliving that experience under hypnotic uh, regression. She was displaying those physical symptoms. Because the, the fear and the terror was so great that it just flooded her instantly. Well, people who believe that that people who experience these things have been uh, literally abducted by alien beings and taking on a spacecraft. These people believe that uh, UFO aliens are putting a mental block into people's minds mm -hmm. and uh, that prevents them from recalling the experience. Uh, that's not my personal belief. You think it's more the human mind blocking it out as a defense mechanism? or? Well, it's really the, the differences in my belief about the so-called alien abductions altogether. Uh, I don't believe that UFOs, generally speaking, represent aliens from space. I do believe that people who experience these types of things are interacting with some form of non-human intelligence. I believe that intelligence is based on this planet, and I believe that it's happening in their reality. It's really happening to them, but somebody else who might be looking at them would probably see someone sound asleep. So uh, you think it's happening on another plane of consciousness, or...? Well, uh, I, these questions 
I don't think anybody can ever really have an answer to. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's easy to speculate, but nobody knows. And I don't think anybody's ever going to be able to find out. I think if you get too close to finding out, uh, really negative stuff starts happening to you. I mean, there's a lot of different theories that go beyond just extraterrestrial beings from another planet or another galaxy. Uh, some of the more popular ones are that these space aliens are actually future humans from a post-apocalyptic world that have uh, accessed time travel in some manner to come back and, and study humans to try to find out what it is that did them in. And, uh, you know, another theory is that, you know, it, it's something, like you said, that's going on in this planet, but it's some sort of, you know, secretive program and that those alien images are what's being planted to cover up for whatever the government or, or the CIA, whoever you want to say, is, is doing this. See, I, I believe that the alien images are a cover-up, but not a cover-up from the government, but a cover-up from the actual uh, agency. And by agency, I mean intelligence, not a government agency, but whatever entity or group of entities is, uh, is actually out there. And I believe that uh, ghosts, so-called Bigfoot, UFOs and aliens, uh, even, you know mundane stuff, uh, poltergeist activity, I believe that's all manifestations of the same intelligence. And I think that a case like the Bridgewater Triangle is good evidence for that. Uh, if UFOs were aliens from space, why would they be so interested in visiting a place where there was a Bigfoot creature living in the woods? Similarly, if Bigfoot is some undiscovered hominid, uh, why is it that it happens to exist in an area where there's a lot of ghost reports? Exactly. Yeah, it does seem strange that there are what we would call paranormal hotspots, and that's where you have a lot of this activity overlapping. But then again, it, you know, some people might theorize that could be because that area has a very you know, a thin membrane around it in terms of believability. But now, just to backtrack a little bit uh, to, to your story when you were out in the Bridgewater Triangle camping, you guys said that you, you said you were out, you and the other gentleman were outside and seeing these lights happen, That's and true. she was inside the tent sleeping. It was How much of your focus was on the tent and what could have been happening in the tent at the time? No, none of my focus was on the tent. And honestly, uh, I feel a great deal of remorse that that happened to my girlfriend, Jen, and I feel terrible that because of my foolhardy uh, interest and drive to try to get to the bottom of something that no man is ever going to be able to explain, that she got caught up in it. Uh, I've had many, many friends and colleagues who investigate, and then they reap the negative consequences of that. But that's the only case I know of where somebody's girlfriend gets, gets wrapped up in it, and I never experienced anything like that. But then again, I mean, also, if there's nothing drawing your attention to make you think that there's something going on, then you have no reason for concern. You feel comfortable almost that you're the one that's in danger because you're out there experiencing this, and she's tucked safe in her sleeping bag. Yeah, I, the thing is, is that uh, the more you, as an individual, think about this phenomena, the more likely it is to interact with you. And it interacting with you is not something that you want. So maybe spooky South Coast isn't such a good idea. You know, well, <laughs> it's, it's great to talk about these stories and to collect these stories mm -hmm. and to think about them and to theorize about them and to speculate about them. It's when you really actively go seeking your own experiences and uh, trying. Th there comes a point where I believe anybody will get deep, deep enough into trying to interact with this intelligence that they realize that it is interactive. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll give you an example that, that goes back to the 1960s and a, and a very famous ufologist named John Keel. He, uh, he was observing UFOs in the skies over the rural hills of West Virginia, uh, looking at them, watching what they do, and he came upon the idea of trying to signal them with a flashlight. So he signaled them with, uh, it was Morse code for L, 
they move to the left. Morse code wow. for R, they move to the right. So he's thinking, wow, these aliens from space understand Morse code. They must understand everything about us. And then it struck him, what if I, what if I chose something totally arbitrary? What if I shine this flashlight in the shape of a triangle and it means go left? And I shine it in the shape of a circle, it means go right. You shine the triangle, they move to the left. You shine the triangle, they move to the right. They were interacting with his mind. So it's, it's a telekinetic uh, connection almost. So you think that if you were trying to get out there and discover this stuff, you're almost baiting them it's into true. coming to find you. Uh, I believe that UFO and paranormal manifestations exist for the purpose of being seen. That is, if there's no one there to see a UFO, then there's not going to be a UFO in that area. I believe that you know UFOs, ghosts, and Bigfoot, they exist to be seen. And the desire is, is that you're going to see it and interpret it in a way that it wants you to interpret that. When you see Bigfoot, you're supposed to think you're seeing some kind of you know, woolly, hominid, man mm-hmm. creature that lives out there. I mean, I can't tell you how many uh, Bigfoot reports I've gotten from this area. Uh, I've gotten quite a few from the area of Lake, I think it's called Nip and Nicket, usually called Lake Nip in Bridgewater. Mm-hmm. And uh, there seems to be a widespread belief, backed up by a lot of sightings, that there are Bigfoot creatures that live on the islands in that lake. Now, I suppose, uh, you know, if you're, if you're out there listening to this and you've never seen these islands, uh, the idea of islands with a Bigfoot kind of sounds like something out of King Kong, sounds like mm-hmm. something that yeah. might be believable. Those islands are tiny. There's no way there's enough food in that area to sustain a group of these creatures. And yet, I, I you know, absolutely do believe that the people who tell me that they've heard things on these islands, seen things in the vicinity of this lake, that they're being honest. And so you talked about uh, an intelligence agency they think is is almost behind all of this. Is that like an international body, almost something like an Illuminati? I don't believe that uh, any government agency has a handle on what's going on. I think it's a non-human, a non-human entity, a non-human intelligence. You know, I don't. I, after all my years of investigating this, talking with government personnel, going to UFO conferences, I've become convinced that the government doesn't know any more about UFOs than your average man on the street. Mm-hmm. The fact is, is that. Uh, the United States Air Force investigated UFOs until 1969. Uh, they commissioned a study uh, at the University of Colorado to determine if they should continue with that. And the results of the study was there are UFO sightings that we can't explain, but they don't constitute a threat to national security. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And on those grounds, Project Blue Book, which was the government attempt to learn about UFOs, it was closed. And, and I, I'm in agreement with that. I don't think that UFOs pose a threat to the United States military. But they do pose a threat to United States citizens individually should they go out and, and bait it. As, as I, I agree. I, I think that, uh, I think that it's, it's very dangerous to be involved in paranormal investigation, and, and I would warn anybody against it. I don't uh, – ver- only very rarely do I actively investigate UFO sightings or paranormal events anymore. Now I view myself more as a folklorist who collects stories, looks for connections between the stories. I'm not out there with a digital camera and a tape recorder anymore. It became, uh, you know, so many things started happening to me. Uh, for a time, I, I wouldn't even think, I think for a year and a half, I didn't even think about UFOs. After, after it being something that nearly consumed my life for more than seven years. Well, and, and speaking of stories, we would like to hear yours. Maybe you had an experience you know, with a UFO, with uh, some sort of alien intelligence, or some sort of higher intelligence, as, as Chris is speaking of. 508-996-0500 is the number, or 508-2910-500 for Wareham and the Cape. Uh, we're going to take another quick break, come back on the other side. 
hopefully take some of your phone calls, talk a bit more with Chris and Aaron about the Bridgewater Triangle and a whole host of other things right here on Spooky South Coast. Battery trouble? Then get in the zone. AutoZone, before battery trouble leaves you stranded. Fact is, if the battery in your car is more than four years old, you're at risk. Don't take chances. Get to AutoZone now. AutoZone has batteries for practically every car and every budget, including our best-selling Duralast battery, backed by a seven-year warranty and a two-year free replacement guarantee. So don't risk getting stuck with a dead battery. Just get in the zone. AutoZone. Don't look now, but Spooky South Coast is creeping up behind you right after this. Well, it is right after this here on Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg, Matt Costa here, and we are talking with Chris Pittman and Aaron Keju of the Bridgewater Triangle fame. And uh, we talked with Chris, who runs a website devoted to it. Now Aaron is a a filmmaker who made a film called Inside the Bridgewater Triangle. Now, did that air on any, any local television or... Um, actually, it did not. I had done it as a uh, f- sophomore in college, and at the time, I didn't really think it would take off, and so I did use copyrighted music in the film, mm-hmm. so therefore, its uh, its possibilities were very limited, although it did uh, was entered into the 2004 Fall River Film Festival, where it was was shown to an audience and, and it is a fascinating film hopefully maybe somewhere down the line we can arrange uh, maybe a, a group showing at a library something that's a, of a non-profit entity and, and that- it's actually a topic that i would not be opposed to re- revisiting with another documentary film now that i have more experience and i know more of the legalities involved in filmmaking and mm-hmm. i uh, have a, I've improved as a filmmaker since that time. That was quite a while ago now. Well, for being an early effort, it was a, it was an excellent film. Well, thank you very much. Now you, like we said earlier in the show, you spent some time out there. You spent a night out there, and also uh, in the daylight hours doing some investigation. And you said that you didn't really have a lot of uh, paranormal activity happen to you. No, I will say that one of the most peculiar things that happened was I was investigating Anawan Rock in mm-hmm. Rehoboth, which is the uh, site where Anawan, one of Ch- King Philip's chief uh, warriors during King Philip's War, was captured by Captain Benjamin Church and his brigade, who was at the end of the war in se- uh, 1676, was rounding up the remaining Wampanoag Indians in southeastern Massachusetts. And that is where Anawan Rock is where Anawan was captured by Benjamin Church, like I had mentioned. So I went there with my video camera and was going to attempt to talk to some of the locals who lived next to there after there's been reports of uh, phantom fires burning and smoke and drum beating, drum, drums beating and that kind of thing. And so I went to the house that was closest to Anawan Rock, and basically Anawan Rock is in the backyard of this home. And a gentleman was out cutting his lawn, and I asked him, I said, could I ask you, I'm doing a documentary film on the, the Bridgewater Triangle, and Anawan Rock is included in, in the Bridgewater Triangle. Could I talk to you about some of the things you might have experienced living next to Anawan Rock? And he refused to say anything on record. And off the record, he said, oh, I smell smoke all the time. We hear drums beating. We hear this. We see that. And I just found it very peculiar because somebody who, a lot of people who make these claims want to be heard and would jump at the opportunity exactly, to be yeah. in a film and have these things heard. But this guy seemed that he was so scared from what he's experienced living next to Anawan Rock, he didn't want to be on record saying it, which I found was a very peculiar thing. Uh, you will find a lot of people, they tend to want to bury this information and, and not acknowledge that it happens. And then in some cases, you have uh, residents that live near these areas that just don't want, you know, crazy amateur ghost hunters showing up in their backyard. But now, what a lot of people don't realize is this whole area, and as Chris said, as far out as Franklin, up into middle 
Middleborough all the way down here to the coast. This was all one giant battlefield during King Philip's War, and it was the bloodiest war on American soil in terms of, you know, the per capita per basis. capita basis. And so, if there is something to that theory of the paranormal, then this area naturally should be very rich in that kind of stuff. But you experience some stuff out there that isn't necessarily from a supernatural realm and and more of human activity, but still of a, a, a of a dangerous. Uh, atmosphere. Yeah, the last scene in the film deals with the Freetown Fall River State Forest, which has long been a place for um, not so wholesome activity. Uh, it's often a dumping ground for murder victims. Uh, mob slayings will dump victims there, from what I've heard. But I actually focus mostly on. Um, now, this is kind of a touchy subject. And uh, before I mention this, I want to say that I'm not pointing the figure at any specific sect of satanic worship. Uh, like the Church of Satan or the Temple of Set. This is not directed at any specific realm, but uh, there has been some evidence of satanic activity in the Freetown State Forest, including uh, the ritualistic slayings of animals in particular, and some grave robbing also. And the last uh, scene in the film uh, is an interview with uh, Detec Detective Lieutenant Alan Alves, who's retired from the Freetown uh police department and he was in charge of investigating all the evidence of satanic activity in the freetown state forest and he was a big help in the film and he was a great interview and he actually allowed me the use of his file photos and file materials and his experiences well, let's face it too a lot of the times when you're out in the woods or in these abandoned buildings and you find out about satanic rituals or or just mutilations or ritualistic slaughter you know, that's not necessarily these groups that are associated with an organized church or, you know, they have their own way of doing it. And if they were to go out into the woods and do something, they'd cover their tracks a little bit better. A lot of times these are the amateur, you know, they read the satanic verses, uh, the satanic Bible, I mean, and they're, they're out there trying to, you know, worship in their own way. And what a lot of people don't realize when they go out there and they encounter this kind of stuff is, you know, it, it happens out there. Because it's away from people, that's why they go out there to do it, to keep it away from the general population. I mean, what is the police's stance on... Because I remember in the film there was uh, something where they said if they bought these you know, cattle, for example, they were mutilating cattle, if they bought them at, a, at an, auction, an auction, there's nothing they could really do legally if they were going to take them out there and Covered slaughter under them. Under freedom of religion, unless you're uh, hurting people, there's not much the police can do about it. And for those of you who question whether this stuff really happened... Uh, the film features video footage of mutilated cattle. Very graphic footage, in yes. In 1998. That was actually the la pretty much the last piece of satanic activity that's been found in the Freetown Fall River State Forest. And that was a very disturbing part of the film. And I debated whether or not I wanted to use the footage. But it really brings the point home that this stuff did happen in the Freetown Fall River State Forest. And also the file photos that are included in that. Uh, including the grave, grave robberies that happened uh, at a family cemetery that's located inside the Freetown Florida State Forest. And, and those are graves that were, what, close to 400 years old? They were from, uh, like, the, the 17th and the 18th century, I remember Detective I believe Alves the saying. graves that were featured in my film were from the 17 or 1800s. Yeah, so that's, I mean, you know, that's a... a 
going far back to to have to uh, they said that in the in the film uh, detective Al said that a lot of times new cult members have to bring a skull to some sort of, of ritual and that that's part of why they would dig up these graves uh, but as you know anytime you disturb a grave you're opening a pandora's box to all kinds of a negative activity but these uh, maybe chris can jump in on this too these cattle mutilations and these animal slaughters are something that you find not only just in satanic areas, but also where there's a history of UFO sightings. That's right. We do find a lot of this stu- activity. Yeah, there is some overlap between what is uh, considered, even by the police, to be cult activity and what many UFO investigators would believe to be UFO-related activity, particularly the cattle mutilations that have been mentioned. Some of the uh, footage that's uh, in the movie, it's definitely uh, cult activity. Mm-hmm. The cattle may be, uh, may be a supernatural agency at work. Uh, many, many years ago, f- probably six years ago now, I was contacted by a pair of twins who had seen my website, and at first they just wanted to talk about some strange experiences that they'd had in the Freetown Fall River State Forest. But the more I spoke with them, the more I became convinced that they had had uh, close encounters with non-human intelligences within their own home, what people would call the uh, alien abduction phenomena, and uh, it got to the point where we did do some hypnotic regression that had some really frightening results. But she believed, she actually uh, worked with Detective Alves because she believed that these cult members were uh, assailing her and her family at home. They had allegedly ruined a boat that they had. They had vandalized some of their property. But, but more to the point, some of the behavior that she attributed to these so-called cult members was very paranormal in nature, that they could appear and disappear, that they'd be knocking on the door, she'd see them, they were all dressed in black, they looked like some kind of satanic cult members. She'd run outside to confront them face-to-face, and they were gone, and there was nobody there. So it's, it's really unsolved. I don't believe anybody was ever arrested and been uh, charged with any of the crimes that the cult was accused of committing. I'm convinced that there, is, uh, that there are bad people uh, in uh, this area who might be who might consider themselves Satanists, who might call themselves Satanists mm-hmm. and be behind some of this stuff. I think some of it definitely uh, is, is probably paranormal in nature. And, and one question I have is, is it possible that some of these cults uh, are linked to this intelligence agency you speak of? Is it possible that maybe they're not Satanic worshippers in general, but maybe the reason why you see a lot of these you know, almost ritualistic slayings associated with it is because it's some sort of group that worships or works in conjunction with that intelligence? Well, I don't think that they are really working in conjunction with it, but I do think it's entirely possible that that uh, intelligence has a hand in what they're doing, mm-hmm. that it's influencing them. I, When I first started studying the Bridgewater Triangle, I was contacted by a person who is a psychotherapist from this area, who has worked as a psychotherapist for decades in many parts of America, and had never seen the levels of uh, misery, mental illness, uh, just dejected, angry, potentially violent people that she worked with in the Bridgewater Triangle area. And, and that's something that ties in with the killings and, and the possible satanic activity. And I think that that may well tie into the fact that Paranormal activity, it seems to, paranormal activity seems to be so common in that area. And that's something that I've noticed uh, even before I started. I mean, I've always been interested in the paranormal, but before I started heavily researching in preparation for the show, 
I've noticed that this area, the Bridgewater Triangle, even but even further beyond, there's a lot of what you speak of, the mental illness, the depression. It just seems like in this area there's a high, I mean, that could be, you know, socioeconomic factors. That could be, you know, there's a, a lot of old school immigrants from this area that, you know, there's so many different factors. But this area, this whole south coast and into the Bridgewater Triangle, seems to have that heavy, overburdening feeling. It's true. And, uh... Yeah, you brought up a good point there with uh, not just the Bridgewater Triangle, but this whole area. I think that the Bridgewater Triangle, as it's been defined, is poorly defined. And mm-hmm. I think it's a much larger area. I think that areas like the Hockamock Swamp, like the Freetown Fall River State Forest, and like Lake Nip and Bridgewater, these areas are the uh, epicenters of an elevated you know, area of activity that covers really this whole area we're in right now as well. You know, Lakeville. Uh, Middleborough, Middleborough which, is, huge. which is not really within the you know so-called Wareham. Triangle. Even there's a lot Absolutely. of a lot of uh, history in Wareham. True, and uh, I think that the reason I think Lauren Coleman he coined the term uh, Bridgewater Triangle because he was writing his book Mysterious America at a time when books about the Bermuda Triangle were on the bestseller list, and it begins with a B and it ends with a triangle. Yeah. It's catchy, but I think that it uh, I think that's a poor definition. But also what also about. at that point too, uh, there might not have been this wide ranging, you know, because back then it wasn't really readily accepted to start talking about this stuff. You were considered, you know, still one of those crackpot UFO people or crack crackpot ghost people. Now as we've seen some of the more um, I want to say intriguing side and more unknown side of parapsychology. People are ready to accept that kind of thing more, so it's it's kind of expanded out as a result of that too. I mean, in uh, in 1973, people started reporting uh, Bigfoot sightings in the area of the the Hockamuck Swamp. Police were called in to investigate, and uh, two police officers parked in a cruiser saw a huge creature that was covered with hair. It went past their windshield within the area illuminated by their spotlight, went around to the back of their vehicle, and actually picked up the back of their vehicle. And uh, then, of course, it was in the Boston Globe, police see giant bear. And there was a giant bear hunt that went on for a while. There are no bears here. No bear was ever captured. Mm -hmm. uh, Actually, that encounter is actually featured in the uh, National uh, Bigfoot Casebook I actually don't remember the name of the author of the book, which is kind of unprofessional. But, well, me, in, but. in these days, all you need to do is just Google it real quick, and you'll find everything you need. Yeah, yeah. Now, one thing, uh, one thing that is is definitely interesting about the the Bridgewater Triangle is the fact that normal people that don't believe in it, that don't realize what's going on, have still reported these sightings. As you say, you get emails all the time, you know, Thunderbirds and, and all, all things of that nature. We're coming up on the news break, but in the next hour we'll get into some of that stuff, some of this Native American folklore and how, it, how it's carried over into the triangle. Again, we want to hear from you, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. Calls are letting up right now. We are coming up on a break, but let's, uh, let's take this call real quick. Good evening, you're on. Oh, oh sorry about that. Good evening. You're on WBSM. How are you doing? Good. How are you? All right. Can we have your, your name and where you're calling from, please? I'm calling from Fairhaven. I'm actually calling to make a cancellation. Okay. Sure. Um, YMCA South Coast. Okay. It's going to be closed tomorrow. All all branches. All branches. Okay. Um, Wareham, New Bedford, Farther. I think three big ones. All right. All right. We will make sure that we mention that a few more times before we go off the air at midnight. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye. 
All right. So uh, again, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500 for Wareham and the Cape. Uh, you might as well uh, give us a call and talk about your experiences because you don't need to get up early and go to the gym. YMCA South Coast, all branches will be closed tomorrow due to the impending storm, which still has yet to start here at our Fairhaven Studios. So, um, And on the other side of the break as well, we'll also touch upon this week in weird, some of these stranger stories that uh, might have passed through the news wires during the past seven days. And we will also give you a little bit of the history of Valentine's Day, which is coming up on Tuesday. Stick around right here after the CBS News. We'll be back with more Spooky South Coast. AM 1420 WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts, Tim Weisberg, Matt Costa, and Evan Russo. And we're back here on Spooky South Coast, our number two, still awaiting the massive nor'easter, blizzard, snow, total ice cap meltdown that's happening to us tonight. Uh, still has yet to happen, so we'll stick around for the full second hour here and bring you more of Spooky South Coast. Uh, again, we have Chris Pittman and Aaron Cajun in here talking about the Bridgewater Triangle, UFOs, ghosts, King Philip's War, all kinds of stuff. But right now we're going to take a, a quick look inside the week and weird and uh, while while we're getting ready for that let me remind you call in with all of your stories your theories your questions for Aaron and Chris your questions about anything remotely paranormal 508-996-0500 508-291-0500 you can also check us out all week long download the show and listen to it from the comfort of your own home anytime on spookysouthcoast.com uh, and again, for those of you who might have missed the announcement before the top of the hour here, uh, the YMCA South Coast will be closed tomorrow. That's all branches, New Bedford, Dartmouth, and Wareham. They're going to uh, close out for the impending snow. So let's take a look this week at the Week in Weird. We'll start with a story uh, from the home country of the 2006 Winter Olympics. Last Saturday night over Milan, Italy, there was a sighting of five objects that lingered in the air from 11 p.m. till 5 a.m., and TV news channels over there in Italy covered it. Uh, it was covered on Italian television and in the news media. The conclusion was that the objects were unexplained. Unlike a lot of these other lights that they see, there's no U.S. military base to blame it on. You know, there's no, like we talked last week about the lights spotted over India, there's no uh, solar flares or, or solar lamps or whatever they try to explain it away with that. So right where all of our fine amateur athletes are competing, there has been some lights spotted. And uh, another quick story here. A renowned Hungarian theater director with terminal cancer, is going to lie in state for a week while he's still alive so he can experience his own funeral. Uh, his name is Peter Halaz. He is an actor, writer, and satirist in the final stages of liver cancer. He's going to begin lying in an open coffin at an art museum in Budapest later this week. Uh, he told the BBC that he's curious how a funeral looks from the other side. He wants to uh, take a look at his friends and listen to the eulogies and the final farewell. And uh, Matt now has a story for us, an interesting story uh, coming out of Florida. This is out of uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida. A uh, airport baggage screener found a human head with teeth, hair, and skin in a lug- luggage of a woman who, s- who said she was intended to ward off evil spirits. Uh, I'm not sure if I'm saying this. Marlene Seaver, 30, a Haitian-born permanent resident of the U.S., was charged Friday with smuggling a human head 
without proper documentation. Hmm. I guess you could say she was trying to get ahead of everybody else. Huh? No. I didn't know Lame. you had to have uh, the proper paperwork. Sounds well, like a head case. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know how it is these days with airport security. You know, they want to make sure that uh, you check all your baggage and they can go through it, you know, because there could have been, you know, an explosive device or something in the head as well. You know, it's, it's possible. But, uh, and let's see here. We have uh, one other interesting story here. For those of you who are fans of cricket, which uh, I'm sure in this room there are none, over in New Zealand there are five first-class cricketers sharing an alleged haunted house in the South Island city of Dunedin. They've been hit by a spooky run of injuries since taking up residence in the former home for the terminally ill. Uh, these uh, five gentlemen have all suffered injuries while living in the former hospice, which is now a five-bedroom townhouse. Uh, one of the gentlemen broke his right knee and broke his leg in a bowling accident. Another dislocated his knee, taking a catch. And the other ones have suffered serious muscle strains all within a two-week period, which is uh, really hurting the team's chances. So uh, maybe they should look into where the uh, Boston Celtics are, are living these days because they've had a similar spooky run of injuries. Okay, we have a call on the line here. Uh, let's go to the phones. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. Uh, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Yeah, I'm calling from uh, New Bedford. I just wanted to know if you could give me the telephone number of the psychic that you had last week. Last week uh, we had the Reverend Gail Hicks. Yes. Uh, she uh, she has a. I don't know if you have a computer, ma'am. Do you have a computer? No. Okay. She has a uh, a website. I will get her phone number for you uh, off that website if you can uh, just give us a few moments. Okay. What is her name again? Uh, Gail Hicks. She she is in the phone book uh, from Fall River. Yeah. So you will be able to uh, look it up there. Uh, I do have the phone number. Uh, with me, uh, okay. I, I will get it on the air for you before the end. Why don't you call back? Uh, are you going to be up till midnight, ma'am? What is it, please? Will you be up till midnight? Well, yeah, I want to listen to some of your stories. All right. Well, I thank you for that. Why I'm interested. Why don't you give us a call during the midnight news break, and I'll, I'll give you that phone number, okay? Okay. I'm... All right. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. It's nice to know that we have some fans out there. Uh, again, if you want to call in and talk to us, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500 for Wear Him in the Cape. All your questions, comments, theories, stories, whatever you have. Right now we're going to jump back into talking about the mysterious goings-on in the Bridgewater Triangle. We have Chris Pittman and Aaron Kaju here. And Aaron, I hope I keep saying your name correctly. Uh, it's, it's actually Kaju, but Kaju. it's pretty close. I'll just start thinking like a cashew. Like you're sneezing. Yeah. Kaju, you know? yeah, there you go. Don't don't be offended if I actually sneeze while I'm saying it. <laughs> now, uh, when you made your film, oh, actually, we have another call here. Let's let's take That's this call fantastic. if you don't mind. Awesome. Good evening. You're on WBSM. Uh, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Hi, my name is Maria. Last uh, week, I was listening to that lady. She predicts something about the uh, the game. Was yeah, she, she right or wrong? Well, she made some Super Bowl predictions. Uh, she said that the score would be in the 20s. She said she was getting the number three. So uh, while the score wasn't close, it was 21 to 10 in favor of the Pittsburgh Steelers. We can stretch this out a bit and say the score was in the 20s because the Steelers scored 21 points. And if you add the two and the one together, it equals three. I don't know how far we're stretching it there. Again, she didn't have a lot of time to meditate on this like she normally would mm-hmm. because I only called her the day before uh, to get her on the air. But So, I mean, it's possible. But she did say Jerome Bettis would be the MVP, and it went to Heinz Ward, which was 
my selection of the newspaper. So maybe I have a touch of psychic abilities. I don't know. <laughs> but did, did you enjoy uh, Gail's appearance last week? Uh, yeah, I've been listening, especially I come from work, so I, I, um, I have the radio on. And uh, I was listening, so I was curious about it, because of that lady, when she called to uh, get her number, um, then uh, reminded me of last week that uh, predictions, and uh, to tell the truth, I didn't even know anything about football. So that's right, I called to find out uh, what was the prediction, if she was right or wrong. Yeah, so we, we might be stretching it a bit with uh, with the connections we're making, but again, she didn't really have a lot of time. When Next time there's uh, something big we need to call her in for, we'll give her plenty of opportunity to All right, to meditate I appreciate on. that. All right, thank you for the okay, call. Thank you for so. listening. Okay, bye-bye. Right. Uh, one more time, we'll give the numbers real quick, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500 for Wear Him in the Cape. Uh, and Aaron, as I was saying, when you, when you made your film, you had a lot of people that were very cooperative uh, to come on and talk about their experiences in the Triangle, but there was one gentleman who wasn't so uh, cooperative. Why don't we talk a bit about him? Yeah, uh, Officer Thomas Downey, of the Brock, uh, retired Brockton police officer, uh, claimed to have seen the Thunderbird creature in the skies above the Hockamock Swamp. I'm not sure if yeah, Chris yeah, actually can elaborate a little bit more on that and when it happened. Well, why don't we tell the listeners exactly what the Thunderbird is for those unfamiliar? Well, the, the Thunderbird really is a uh, Native American legend of a giant bird. Uh, Thunderbird is uh, described as so- sometimes feathered, sometimes like a pterodactyl, and uh, very uh, definitely a very unusual animal, and not one that's recognized by science. Uh, now we pretty much call any sighting of a giant bird that can't be explained to be a Thunderbird. And, and these creatures... You know, uh, I've heard Thunderbirds des- described uh, from some reports as almost human-like in appearance, uh, almost like a winged man. And then other reports say that it's just these elaborate, you know, looks like an eagle, but four times the size of an eagle. Yeah, there's not that much uh, consistency in the descriptions. But uh, I have no doubt that people are seeing these things. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's other related paranormal things out there, the so-called Mothman, uh, things like that might be a part of the same the same thing. So what happened with Officer Downey well, and the... Officer Dom Downey, I think it might have been 1978. It was. It, it was, was 1978. My, uh, thank God I remembered. Uh, Thomas, Thomas Downey claimed that he saw the Thunderbird in the skies above the swamp in 78 and that just flew straight up and disappeared. And he sticks by his story, and actually Fox 25 did a story on this a while back, a little feature on the news, and he refused an interview with Fox 25 but claimed that he would stick by his story. And then I had contacted him. I contacted the Brockton police. They pointed me into his direction. He runs he actually runs a gun shop, I believe, and I called his gun shop and asked him if he'd be willing to talk on film. And he said, oh, you heard about that story, huh? And I was like, yeah. He goes, I don't want to talk about it. And I was like... And since he runs a gun shop, you didn't want to question him, right? <laughs> exactly. And I, I was like, yeah, but I'm a student filmmaker. I'm trying to make my way. You think maybe you could talk to me? And he's like, nope. And I was like, well, do you, would you still stick by what you saw? And he's like, yeah, but, you know... He wouldn't even talk off the record or off film? No, he didn't want to talk to me at all. Uh, it was like a five-minute conversation, if that. I mean, and for all the information that you had in the film, did you encounter that from... Other people? Uh, well, like I mentioned before, the person who lives next to Anawan Rock mm-hmm. also wanted nothing to do with talking but, but generally, on record. But generally you found most people were, were cooperative? and Yeah, and uh, like I said, if I revisited the subject matter, I'd press a little deeper and try to find some more people. Do you think a lot of that might have been, too, that they're just as anxious as, as you are as a filmmaker to get to the bottom of what's going on and try to find out you know, what, what's happening to them in, the, in that area? I think that's definitely a possibility, definitely. 
Right, now let's talk about uh, out in these, as we said before, the Bridgewater Triangle encompasses a large area of the battlefields of King Philip's War, which uh, for those of you you might not be familiar, is actually a very bloody war that happened in colonial times. And uh, actually, we'll get back to this point in one second because I'd like to take this call. It's nice to have some calls, so let's uh, let's take it. Good evening, you're on Spooky South Coast. Uh, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Yes, my name's Donna from Fairhaven. How you doing, Donna? I'm doing good. How about you? All right. Um, question I just wanted to ask you is, have you guys ever heard about the uh, cemetery on um, Wolf Island Road in Mattapoisett? I have heard of it. Uh, there's a website that uh, we are familiar with here called the Shadowlands.net, or it might be .com. I don't know if they've moved servers yet, but they have a list of a lot of haunted places in Massachusetts, and, and they list that cemetery as one of them. What, what have you heard in terms of activity out there? Um, just strange lights. Um, I don't think I saw on a website somewhere that um, there's like an image of people hanging, that people were hanged there that's, at one that's time. That's the story I've heard. And I'm, I don't know, I just wondered why it was haunted. Like what happened there? Was there some sort of battle there or whatever? But I've, I've been there a couple times too. I, I really don't like going by there. Well, a lot of times these older cemeteries uh, from colonial and post-colonial times, that would be... Uh, the, the common theory is that there was a lot of gallows outside of courthouses, um, but in reality, there were a lot of gallows in cemeteries as well. Um, mm-hmm. Matt, do you? I actually heard on urban legend about uh, Wolf Island Road. Um, I guess in the early or mid seventies, there was a um, two brothers that it, that used to uh, live around there, and they um, that used to be a lovers' lane type area. And whenever um, a couple would go down there to uh, watch the submarine races, I guess. <laughs> As we say politely. Um, they used to uh, murder them. I'm not sure if that's actually really? true. Really? They, they would just... I thought I heard, I heard something about that, too. Back in, like, 78 or so, there was a murder yeah. down there. I mean, uh, it's, it's quite possible that there's, especially when you get to these old spooky back roads and when you consider how long... You know, there's been people in this area. Uh, there's a, a huge wealth of possibilities. Um, but, I mean, maybe some other people out there have, have had some experiences. They can give us a call, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. But in terms of uh, personal experience, it's it's definitely high on our list of, in the warmer months, places that we plan on going out and just getting a better feel for ourselves. Uh, you know, as, as Chris was saying, we don't we're not really in the... Uh, investigation business ourselves but we want to try and do a little more research and, and find out the answer to these questions so uh, you said that you don't like you know being in that area but you've never experienced anything uh, in terms of uh you know like you've never seen these hanging bodies yourself or no i never really saw anything just a very um like i was being watched and my husband got the same feeling too and it's just i, I just don't like being around there well what brings you to that area i mean is it somewhere where you go walking or um, well, we would take in a drive. Um, we would sometimes we just take a drive around, mm-hmm. and then we had stopped the car and just sat there. And then it's, the atmosphere just changed, and like felt like somebody was watching us. And it's just like a creepy feeling, like uh, you know, you don't want to be there. Like whatever it was that was there didn't want us there. I'm not sure if uh, if I remember right from the from the Shadowlands site, but there is a, a cemetery around here where if you flash your headlights when you're at the cemetery, uh, then the caretaker will come out and, and approach you. And, and I don't know if that's the same one or not, but I mean maybe we can find out some more information for you. And uh, I, I just say keep listening, and we'll we'll see what we can find out. Okay. 
Thank you very much. All right, thanks. All right, we have another call here lined up. Uh, good evening. Good evening. You are on Spooky South Coast. Uh, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Hey, how you doing? I'm from Fairhaven also. Okay. My name's Steve. It's really funny because about 10 minutes ago before this lady called, uh, I was listening to your program and I started thinking about Wolf Island Road, the cemetery there. I'm very familiar with it growing up in the area. And let me tell you, she is so right. I don't know if, if it's, it's just a weird feeling. I've walked in that cemetery at night before. Mm-hmm. And it's really creepy. It's going to be, I used to live next to St. Mary's in North Vegas, and you could walk through that cemetery, but you had nowhere near that feeling as with the one on Wolf Island Road. And what is it that, that gives it that feeling? Is it the location? Is it just an ominous pressure feeling on you, a feeling of uh, of doom almost? Or? It's just a strange feeling. It's like, there's, it's, it's like there's someone behind every tombstone. It's like you, it's like, you almost like see shadows, but you don't see them. It's really strange. I mean, I know exactly what that lady was saying because I've experienced it over there. It's a strange, just a, I guess it's a strange place for a cemetery also. Mm-hmm. And it's surrounded on three sides by uh, by woods and then the street in front. It's just a really creepy, creepy cemetery. If anybody ever wants to scare their wits out, go there like on Halloween night. <laughs> well, <laughs> now, well, unfortunately, there's a lot of people that, that do just that, and that's where a lot of these stories come about from, are pranks and everything. Now, uh, do you, you don't get that kind of feeling around any other cemetery? or No, no, no. Like I said, I, I live right near the one in North Haven, and that's like a gorgeous cemetery. It's mm-hmm. beautiful in there. No way to near. You just get creeped out when you walk through that cemetery. I just figured I had to throw that in. It was funny oh, because well, no, before, thank she, you. before she even called, I was thinking about <laughs> Wolf Island Road, the cemetery there's, down there. There's definitely... And then she called and it like blew my mind. I said, wow, I can't believe she just brought up that. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. That's what we do yeah. here. <laughs> hey, you guys got a good, got a good program. All right, well, thank good you. Spread the, spread the word. All right, man. Yeah. Thanks. Have a good night. All right, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of uh, cemeteries around here that have, you know, similar type stories. And if you drive by some of these old uh, old cemeteries, see, when you go around uh, Boston or, or Plymouth even, where they were these more highly populated areas, the cemeteries and the proper burial of the dead were, you know, observed in the old traditions. But when you got out here and it was almost like a pioneering wilderness type area at times, a lot of these old graveyards are kind of just hodgepodge, thrown around. They pop up in the strangest places. So, But uh, getting back to those times, we were talking about the Bridgewater Triangle and, and King Philip's War. And out in that area, there are some uh, geological uh, areas that are of significance. Uh, yeah, that, uh, the two main ones, I would say, are Dighton Rock and Dighton, uh, State, Dighton Rock State Park and uh, Profile Rock in Freetown. Uh, Chris... Uh, talks about both of those sites on his website. I do, uh, and I've and I've visited both of them more than once, uh, and that's you know something that's special about the so-called Bridgewater Triangle area is that it has some of these ancient, uh, what are called lithic sites, meaning sites made of stone. Um, that's another thing that I've been very interested in, and uh, Profile Rock. If uh, it's amazing, those, yeah, it is. It's it's really something. Uh, I know everyone's probably familiar with the Man in the Mountain uh, in New Hampshire. That's not there anymore. This is like you know twice as impressive. It's something that you see relatively close up. Uh, it looks like the prof- It looks like a profile. It looks very strikingly like a Native American profile. And there are some uh, interesting stone formations around the base of this profile that. Uh, there are little niches and alcoves that are almost certainly naturally occurring, but certainly look like they're well-suited for uh, habitation and probably were occupied by Native Americans uh, long it's, ago. It's hard to believe that something like Profile Rock happened by accident. 
Mm-hmm. If you if you go to the observation area that they have set up there and look at profile rockets, absolutely phenomenal. And I would suggest that everybody in southeastern Massachusetts should take a drive by there on Bullock Road in Freetown and go to Profile Rock. But but to uh, to, to accent what you're saying, when you say it's hard to believe it happened by accident, it is a natural rock formation. Yes, it is. But it happened, you think, for a purpose. Yeah, I definitely think so. It's it's too it, it's too perfect. I mean, it looks two or three times as much. Like a face, then really looks like a face. And, Old and man on the it has the full, almost like the full headdress aspect it to does. this, yes, to the head as well. Uh, and now, a lot of these Native Americans use that site as a as a worshiping area or, or something to that degree. I remember from the film. What exactly went on there that we that we know of? Well, I think that uh, I think that it's it's difficult to know exactly what went on because there is so little uh, history of the early uh, Native you know people who lived in this area before the settlers came i think that people think that it was a uh, a vision quest site which is something that's very common in native american uh, lithic sites basically uh, the idea of a vision quest site is that it's something that a young native american might uh, travel to possibly from a long distance and almost certainly on foot and uh, in the hopes of encountering some kind of a uh, not a supernatural, but a spiritual mm-hmm. vision. Yeah, exactly. And uh, oftentimes, stone cairns, uh, big piles of stones, are left behind by these by these travelers uh, after decades of people visiting this as, as a spirit quest site. Now, we talk about King Philip's War, and what a lot of people who aren't versed in the history might not realize, King Philip was actually a Native American. He was the son of Massasoit, and he was the heir to the Wampanoag Empire. And he lived, uh, I think, on Mount Hope in Rhode Island. And so to have come out, I mean, there's a lot of worshipping areas they had in this, in this region because their empire was so great. Uh, that when the quote-unquote white man, the colonists, moved in, and he started chipping away at that, you know, naturally they had to, to fight back. So we're stepping into their area and into things that we don't understand. And like you said, we've buried a lot of that history because we don't understand it. And it's it's been so poorly researched. I got a, a message from someone years ago who said that they had remembered decades ago living in an area of Lakeville, that uh, was dotted with what they call to be Indian caves. So I drove out to this area, and I actually uh, met some of the locals and talked to them about it. Uh, this was an area of Lakeville where the houses were very small. A lot of the people that I spoke with were elderly and had probably been living there for decades. Mm-hmm. And uh, they said that the Indian caves had been there as long as they could recall. After only a short time in the woods, I was surrounded by stone cairns, balanced stones, uh, piles of uh, white quartz, which is rare to find uh, grouped together like that and was certainly put there by Native Americans. I mean, the woods were just filled with these very interesting features. The, the white quartz itself has a, a spiritual and uh, almost a supernatural connection. And there's a lot of these caves out in Middleborough, too, in the area known as Rock Village. And a lot of the Rock Village name can be derivative of the same type of stuff that you're talking about. It's true. Actually, uh, if I could just make a quick point on sure. King Philip's War, because actually I, I am in the process of a long-term documentary on the subject, and anybody out there who might want to be a part of the project, feel free to contact me through the Spooky South Coast website and link to my page. I'd love to hear from you. But just as a quick note on that, I think King Philip's War is probably one of the most important things that ever happened in American history, and it's so neglected in the school systems, especially around here, for something that local to be that neglected in the school systems is an absolute travesty. Well, do you know why it's neglected? Unfortunately, it's because... It's a black mark. It, 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 exactly, because, you know, uh, granted, some of us are native to this area. We are descendants of the Native Americans. 
but basically it's just a matter of us being, quote-unquote, the white man in general, coming in here and just slaughtering the Indians and taking over. And it's not something that, you know, has been promoted as, hey, the great American dream, you know, man, manifest destiny is the, the term we use to cover up with the fact that we basically committed genocide to take over the land. Just as so. an example of that, I mean, there's a place in South Kingston, Rhode Island, called the Great Swamp, and that was the biggest battle of the war, and over 600 Narragansett and Wampanoag men, women, and children were slaughtered in the swamp. And at that time, with their population already decimated by smallpox, it, it was—it's just the percentages are astronomical, and yeah, it's just—it's a travesty. The stamps of that are still on the land down there. You can go to Smith's Castle, which is a big building, uh, not really a castle, but a, a very large homestead that was actually destroyed following the uh, Great Swamp fight. And some of the settlers who were wounded in that fight and uh, made their way back to Smith's Castle are buried there. I mean, this is something where you can go to where these places things happen There's a monument see it. there. Yeah. And and it, people don't generally know. I mean, about if it. you look at uh you go down to Gettysburg and how much people revere that area, you know, and how much they respect that battlefield and also the paranormal stories that are thrown around easily down there. Uh you know, the same type of things going on here and we tend to turn our backs on it. It's unfortunate. And like I said, it's just it's totally neglected by the school systems. It all across Massachusetts and New England, and it shouldn't be. Well, when the when the documentary film is is uh, completed, we will use what little power we have here for two hours on Saturday nights to, to get the word out there and to get that documentary shown. All right, we're going to take a quick break right now. We'll be back in about a minute. We want your phone calls, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. Anything you want to talk about paranormal right here on Spooky South Coast. There's a touch of madness around here. Paranormal, is that what they're calling your kind these days? And welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with Matt Costa. We have uh, Chris Pittman and Aaron. I'll let you do it this time. Aaron Cadju. <laughs> Here in the studio, we're talking about the Bridgewater Triangle, King Phillips War, cemeteries, anything you guys want to talk about, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500, and we have a call right now. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast. Uh, what's your name? Where are you calling from? Um, I from uh, Dartmouth. How you doing tonight? Oh, fine. I'm glad I came across I, I, your program. It's interesting. Um, I had two great neighbors who were descendants of King Philip. Wow. And uh, they told me, or one of the neighbors told me, that uh, uh, apparently a great part of Dartmouth was occupied by King Philip and his uh, the tribe he belonged to. I have, I've forgotten now because it's a little, um, you know, I, I just happened to think of that. I haven't heard about King Philip in a long time. But anyway, they said the reason why he got so angry was they killed his son. He had the son who was going to take over if anything happened to King Philip. And um, uh, the white white man killed his, uh, one of his sons. That that is uh, that is unfortunate. That it happened to King Philip. Uh, 
Uh, I know that, I believe they got his wife as well. His wife and his son were, they're they not exactly sure what happened to them, but they, it's, it's believed that they were sold into slavery into the West Indies, where a lot of the Wampanoag Indians ended up, and there's actually a lot of descendants of the Wampanoags down there today. Was he, was he a Wampanoag? I forgot. Yes, he was. Yeah, he was uh, son, of, son of Massasoit. Yeah. You know what? I've never told anybody this, but except I called the uh, state troopers, uh, I think it was in September, um, I happened to be looking, it was night, uh, close to midnight, and I happened to be looking out, and I saw the strangest thing, I couldn't believe it. So I said, gee, uh, would somebody call them UFOs? They were like, I, I could only see three from my window, so I don't know if there were any more. It, wa it, was, it must have been quite a distance from my house, but they were very large, like an oval shape, and it seemed like if you were to draw it, it would be uh, maybe, um, oh, um, about eight, eight inches thick, you know, to think, uh, look at the, think of uh, eight, inch, oh, eight inches and quite a large oval by maybe 24 inches. And they were swirling around, and it was uh, a yellow, yellowish color, and the center, you could see the sky. And uh, this was the yellowish color was uh, just on the outskirts of, you know, the uh, sky part. So I said, gee, what the heck is that? You know, no noise, nothing. They're just swirling around the sky. So I uh, thought maybe something from the mall. No. Well, anyway, I called the state police, and I asked them about it. I said, you got any calls? What's going on outside? Because uh, I live near them. And... Um, he said, no, why, what's going on? I said, well, if you step outside, you'll see. And I told him about it, but I never called them back. Uh, he said he would, he would go outside, but and, and then after that night, uh, nothing. Now, Chris, I thought I well, saw... What would you call that? Well, I, I call that a UFO. <laughs> exactly. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, UFO is just uh, something that you see in the sky flying that you can't explain. And uh, hearing your description, I can't come up with anything... Uh, as a UFO investigator, I'm trained to try to identify uh, things in the sky. A lot of people see the planet Venus or different types of aircraft and think that they, uh, they might be seeing a UFO, but we're able to identify that. Based on your description, I can't, I can't imagine what that could have been other than something identi no, identified. No, these look like if you were to draw several lines in the Novo, you know, like I say, like maybe from where I was sitting, eight inches thick, and it was a yellowish color. But in the center, you could see the sky. There were no stars around any of it, uh, but you could see. And they were going around like uh, I could only see three from my window. However, there may have been more uh, facing south. But this was towards a north, a west and northwest. Um, but I did call the state police up because I I never seen anything like that. And even when the um, this is rather late, and even when the mall has all its lights on and everything, it has never made any, you know, marks in, uh, in the sky like that. Now, were these high in the sky or, or low in the sky near the horizon? What was that? Were they, were they high up in the sky or were they nearer to the horizon? No, they were nearer to the houses. Oh, I see. Uh, that's what caught my eye, you know, and they were swirling around, just swirling around, but in their own space. Each one was in its own space. Just going round and round, but I noticed they were. I watched it quite a while, 
and they were oval, like I say, and I told you the color and the water. You know, I'm just, if you can picture, like, it may have been more than eight inches, but I'm just trying to put it in perspective of what I saw, you know. Sure. Well, but that... it, it, the, the way, the, and it wasn't a saw, it was like broken up like you, you would draw, uh, like, like take ribbons and uh, uh, string, wrap it around several times, the outside part, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, there would be spaces in there. But it was definitely yellow, uh, or yellow, uh, maybe a little uh, lighter than uh, real yellow. But And in the center was the sky. I, it was a strange thing. I had never seen anything like that. That's uh, that's really amazing, and that's uh, a type of UFO sighting that investigators classify as a nocturnal light sighting, basically when a witness sees lights in the, in the night sky. And they've explained it like that? Well, I mean, there's a categorization system that UFO investigators use to try to define different types of sightings. But uh, Well, I, I kept staring at it because that's what I thought of, and I said, see, if I told anybody, you're the first person, you people are the first ones I've uh, ever told. Well, thanks so much for calling in. That is what we are here for, man. <laughs> okay, then. All right, thank you. Thank you very much. Now, Chris, not to put you on the spot about, uh, you know, the wealth of information that's on your website. We're actually scouring the databases right now, but I thought I'd read somewhere on there around the 1999-2000, there was some sightings of a UFO in Dartmouth previously. It's true. Uh, There have been a number of sightings in in Dartmouth over the years. Uh, Part of uh, my research has been trying to generate a list of all reported UFO sightings in Massachusetts prior to 1970. And in that time period, there are dozens of sightings from Dartmouth. Uh, There were sightings from Dartmouth, I think off the top of my head, going back to uh, 1908. And I I almost wonder if, uh, I'm not, I don't know how familiar you are with Dartmouth, but Colonel Green's mansion is uh, out on the waterfront there, and they have this, you know, this giant dish that was, if I'd heard the story correctly, uh, Hetty Green had purchased that uh, she built for her son, one of the first privately owned radio stations in the in the country, because it was his hobby. And so sure. maybe that dish is attracting some sort of... It's possible that the energy uh, that was released in those uh, potentially early days of radio had something to do with generating some of the energy that uh, people like our caller are experiencing now. And 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 uh, Tesla, who was you know the father of radio, he was a very large believer in the the UFO phenomenon as well, wasn't he? He was, and Tesla, of course, is one of those uh, true geniuses. Who uh, it's frustrating that his contribution to humanity couldn't have been greater because his work was suppressed. Mm-hmm. The, well, oh, yes, I'm sorry. No, no, go right ahead, Aaron. The interesting, well. Part of the reason why so many sightings might come out of the town of Dartmouth is a lot of people well, don't realize Of course, here we are pontificating on Dartmouth, and we have a Dartmouth resident sitting right on the panel. It's actually the third biggest town in the state of Massachusetts in terms of land mass. So, I mean, there's a lot of land there, and there's a mm-hmm. lot of wilderness that, you know, it, it's just a lot of land to see something and, happen. And there is an aspect of Dartmouth where, you know, one minute you're on the coast, and you can have those coastal-type experiences, and then another minute you're in these vast farm areas, and it's similar to what people experience out in you know the Midwest. So, and an interesting factoid: Dartmouth was burned to the ground during King Philip's War as well. All right. So five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred five zero eight two nine one zero five hundred. We still have about twenty minutes to go. We want to hear your stories, your experience, your theories, your questions. Give us a call. Don't forget, you can check us out all week www.spookysouthcoast.com, where you can find links to Aaron's website and to Christopher's website as well. So uh, just feel free to give us a call, and we can talk about whatever you have questions about. One thing I just want to touch upon real quick, uh, 
since we're heading into the Valentine holiday. A lot of people are unfamiliar with the story of Valentine's Day and how it came about. Uh, actually, it's named for St. Valentine, as we all know, but uh, there's some, some question as to who St. Valentine actually was. Uh, according to one legend, uh, he was working under Emperor Claudius. Uh, he decided that single men... Emperor Claudius, I'm sorry, decided that single men made better soldiers than they did husbands. So uh, he wanted to suppress, you know, quote-unquote love to uh, try and build up his army. Uh, And Valentine would realize that this is a a great injustice, so he continued to perform marriages for these young men in secret. Uh, And when he was found out, Claudius ordered him to be put to death. Now, when he was in prison, he fell in love with uh, the supposedly the daughter of his jailer, and uh, he left her a letter before he was put to death, and he wrote on it, From Your Valentine. So that is the commonly accepted theory as to why we celebrate Valentine's Day in the way that we do. Uh, but there, there are some other theories as well out there. And if you have heard anything different and you'd like to, to comment on that, you can also give us a call, 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500 from Wareham in the Cape. It is snowing out now, by the way. Oh, here we go. It's starting up. I, I was telling Aaron during the news break that it seemed like there was a, a vortex of wind building up out front, and whenever we started talking about something maybe we shouldn't have been, it would come dangerously close to the window, and then as soon as we started talking about more mundane topics, it would blow away. So. It's like a cyclone. Exactly. It's strange. I think it has to do with the shape of the building, but uh, I think the self-promoter in me would like to think that, you know, something out there is Spooky. telling us to be quiet. Exactly. So, uh, oh, uh, Chris, why don't we touch a little bit just about on not only your work with the Bridgewater Triangle, but what you do with the Mutual UFO Network as well. Sure. Uh, the Mutual UFO Network is the largest UFO organization uh, in the world. It has chapters in uh, many, many countries. And in America, it has a chapter in every state. I'm a member of the Massachusetts State Chapter. Uh, some of our members are among the only people in the, uh, in the country who actually actively go out into the field and investigate UFO sightings. And that's mostly what uh, Mutual UFO Network is all about, going out, talking to witnesses, uh, taking, you know, investigating and trying to explain their, their sightings. And those that are unexplained are then put into a database, and uh, they try to use that database to determine where UFOs are coming from. Now, when you get a report such as the the woman who called us up a few minutes ago, uh, how do you go about determining if it's a legitimate claim or if it's uh, easily explainable? Well, uh, we have a series of forms. There is a Form 1. It's the most basic form. We give it to the witness and conduct a really preliminary interview A lot of times people who aren't credible, who are maybe trying to uh, make a hoax report, that can be weeded out very early on. Uh, There are certain patterns and things that people might say. The caller who called in in earlier, she is the type of person who I would rate as being very credible, Uh, very unlikely that that Mm -hmm. is something that didn't happen. I I believe her story. Uh, When someone calls and says, well, um, a UFO landed in my lawn and I want to go to the Today Show, uh, when they're crazy about publicity, they're convinced they saw an alien from space, this is someone who might not be so credible. Yeah, usually when you uh, pull up to their house, interview them, and they have a table outside where they're selling uh, T-shirts that say, you know, sure. I met the UFO, you know, I met the aliens, and 
things of that nature. Now, do you also contact local authorities to? We do. Sometimes the private citizens will call the authorities, and the authorities will say we'll look into it. And like, in that woman's case, she said they didn't get back to her. She didn't check up. That's right. It might have been something that technically she's not supposed to know about. It might have made it onto the police log. We would call, try to find an exact date. Uh, we might call local airports, try to uh, get radar records from that time, see if there was uh, any kind of. Uh, thing that was tracked on radar that we could look at. We'd also call local airports, see if there were any blimps in the area. Every time the hood blimp comes around, we get UFO sightings. So. <laughs> and uh, the, the problem is a lot of people, when they see these things, they won't go through the trouble of calling the police or the state police or, or, the, air, or the, uh, the army or anything because they think that they're just going to get dismissed and blown, and blown off. Whereas with what you guys do, if they can get in contact with you, then you guys are going to pursue it until you have an answer. We annually send a... Uh, a postcard to every law enforcement agency in the state that says if someone calls reporting a UFO, uh, please relay that call to us. Please and give them our information. Do you find that most of them uh, are agree? I don't think they do. I think most law enforcement agencies throw that right out. I don't think it actually makes it onto a bulletin board by the dispatcher's desk, no. No. Well, we need to start changing. I'm sure we have some uh, law enforcement officials listening that can, can help us out and, and get the word out. Uh, we've got about uh, 12 minutes to go here. 508. 996-0500-508-291-0500 from Wareham in the Cape. You know, it's, it's, it's a stormy night out there. It's, there was snow starting to come down. I know that you are ready to tell us about your paranormal experiences, and we're ready to hear it and believe you. So we're going to take another break real quick. Uh, coming back, and uh, we'll take your calls and uh, talk some more with Chris and Aaron right here on Spooky South Coast. Don't look now, but Spooky South Coast is creeping up behind you right after this. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. And we're back here on Spooky South Coast for the final just about ten minutes here. And uh, we'll we'll give you the phone numbers real quick. 508-996-0500-508-291-0500 for Wareham and the Cape. Don't forget, you can check us out all week long on SpookySouthCoast.com. If you missed a portion of the show, you can click on the blog on our website, download the show, listen to it live right on your computer. There's a way to put it on your MP3 player. We're still trying to figure that out. We promise you we'll get all those kinks worked out. And also on the site, you can find links to Chris and Aaron's websites as well. Now, uh, one of the things we were talking about is these, these Native American rocks. One thing we didn't touch on is Dighton Rock, which uh, for those who are familiar with it, it's out there in a, a little museum out, out in the... Uh, the Bridgewater Triangle area, and it's got some curious uh, inscriptions inscriptions on it surrounding it. So, and uh, it's it's really fascinating. It's a very large rock, and it has a, a flat surface shaped kind of like a trapezoid. This surface is absolutely covered with petroglyphs that are incised into the stone. Uh, there are what appear to be runic characters or letters. Uh, figures. Some of them are humanoid figures. There's a thing that looks like a bird. And there's also some modern graffiti on there. But uh, it's, it's never been explained who, who put those symbols there. Uh, whether it was Native Americans, some people have, believe, have uh, postulated that it was Portuguese explorers or Phoenicians or uh, Viking. Vikings is another popular one. And there, there's nothing else like that really around. There was a, a stone with some runic symbols that was found in Bourne that's in a museum in Bourne now. But really that this rock with all these symbols exists almost in a vacuum with nothing else around it, with nothing that really ties directly into it, that it stands alone the way it and does. It was Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's, it, I was just going to say, it's, it's, it's amazing to me. 
It was actually plucked out of the Taunton River, too. It was not on land. It was actually in the water. Uh, I was going to say, uh, it's possible that it didn't originate in that in that spot. But now, when you have uh, a lot of these inscriptions on things, uh, people instantly relate it to the pyramids and to the Egyptian hieroglyphs. And also, I believe, uh, either the Incas or the Mayas had similar. Uh, and, and they tell almost the story of these visitors from somewhere else, these, these things coming down from the sky. But with the Dighton Rock, it's not really that that intricate. We can't decipher that much, you right? Can't, uh, nobody knows what the symbols on the rock mean. And there are thousands of symbols. And for hundreds of years, people have drawn the inscriptions on that rock. And every time they draw it, the drawing looks totally different. And is that because of the the uh, surface of the rock? It is. The, the, the symbols are without a doubt there. But the surface of the rock is irregular. Sometimes it can be tough to determine whether something that might be a faint line is a carving that may be weathered and wasn't carved very deep, or whether it's a naturally occurring mark on the stone. And also, being in the water, it's it's uh, subject it's to erosion and, and and other things like that. Get as out well. there and so. see it, though, everybody. And now, uh, now is there? It's in that building. Is it uh, open 24 hours, or are there certain it's, hours? Or it's seasonal. I believe the season starts in May. There's, uh, a, there's a phone number you can call, and if you go to the building, the phone number's right there, and someone will come open it up for you if you ask. Excellent, excellent. Now, uh, Chris, we were talking during the break, and you said that you get some very interesting emails uh, from people that have these experiences, and uh, you had some you wanted to share with us. Sure. I'd like to actually read verbatim one email that I got because I think it's really typical uh, of all the emails that I get in that it's totally bizarre, and it can't be explained, and it's, it's believable to me. And uh, I've never heard anything like it before. And so many times I get, I get emails from the so-called Bridgewater Triangle that it can't be fit into anything else that, uh, that I can understand. So okay. I'll, just, I'll just read this. Nineteen years ago this fall, I was still living at home in East Bridgewater and was dating a guy from West Bridgewater. I'll call him Joe. One night we went out parking and he suggested we go to the Nip, which is the lake that I alluded to earlier. Mm-hmm. We were in my car that night. I was driving a 70s model Mustang. We parked in the parking lot where people put their boats in during the summer. While we were sitting there, looking out at the water, we could see directly across from us, on the other side of the lake, what appeared to be a huge bonfire with a large group of people dancing around it. Joe laughed and told me that when he was in high school, he and his buddies used to party over there and that there must be a huge party going on. He suggested we go check it out. We drove down 104 and turned down a side road that went around to the opposite bank from where we had been. The road was treacherous, not really suitable for a Mustang, but I was young and stupid and the ground was cold, so at least it wasn't muddy. It took us maybe ten minutes to get from the parking lot to the empty sandy beach area where we'd seen the bonfire. When we arrived, there was nobody there. Not only was there nobody there, but there was no sign that anyone had been there at any recent time. We sat there for a few minutes, got out, and walked along the shore, trying to see if we could see flames reflecting off the water, knowing that if we weren't in the right spot, we were at least pretty close. We saw nothing. Well, nothing except some sort of strange thing in the water watching us. The only way I can describe the thing is a snake-like neck sticking up out of the water with a huge single eye on the end of it. That was enough for us. We got in the car and drove back the way we came and back to the parking lot on the other side. And there again was the bonfire we'd seen before. And I swear it was in the exact spot where we had been. Joe later told me one time when he was in high school, he and a friend had driven out to that same sandy beach area with some beer and sat there for hours drinking away. When they'd finished a beer, they'd tossed the empty out the window. They both fell asleep, and when they woke up the following morning and got out of the car to go to the bathroom, they said there was no sign of their empties, nor of any footprints on the sand from whoever had collected them. And that's it. And, and that, that email is so 
interesting to me. And I get emails. I mean, some kind of weird mutant snake thing with mm-hmm. a single eye. I mean, that's that's one of a kind. <laughs> and, and that's something that is, if you tell the story, there are other people that may have seen something similar that just don't want to be the first one to come out and say it. Sure. And when people send me these emails, uh, invariably they don't want me to uh, use their name in conjunction with the story. And, I, of course, I don't. Uh, people don't want to be viewed as as crazy when they tell these stories. But I get, I get a lot of emails about Lake Nip, and I get... Uh, you know, a lot of emails about uh, the Phantom Fire really ties into what we were talking about with Anawan Rock earlier and some of the Native American legends. And, and you say that, you know, people don't want to be viewed as crazy, but I think uh, as we find out more and more about the subject of the paranormal or, what, you know, whatever you want to call it, it's almost crazy to, to shut out any kind of possibility of it. It's true, definitely. All right, well, uh, why don't we give you guys each a chance to plug your websites before we wrap things up here? Okay, uh, my website is the Massachusetts UFO Resource Site. It has kind of a difficult-to-remember address. It's uh, members, the word members, dot AOL dot com slash Socorro64, which is spelled S-O-C-C-O-R-R-O-6-4. And, uh, and that's it. You can type in uh, Massachusetts UFO Resource Site into a search engine. It'll take you there. Okay, and Aaron, your site? My website is a cheap GeoCities site, but it works. It's www.geocities.com slash BOProductions2, and BO stands for Big Operations. And if you are interested in seeing Inside the Bridgewater Triangle, though the film is not for sale, feel free to contact me, and we can arrange for you to see it. And also, if you have any information on King Philip's War and would like to be a part of that project, contact me as well. Okay, and uh, once again, there are links to both of their websites on www.spookysouthcoast.com. We won't be taking that information down. That information will stay up for quite a long time, as long as we have the the bandwidth and the space to do so. Uh, Remember, you can contact us via email all week long. Uh, The email is on the website. It's also tim at spookysouthcoast.com or matt at SpookySouthCoast.com. If you don't feel comfortable telling your story, uh, you can just email it to us. Also, don't forget you can download the show right off the website each week uh, so you can find out what we're all about in case you miss part of the show and uh, get ready to give us all your calls, your stories, your theories. Uh, next week when we come back. Uh, still uh, waiting to find out about next week's guest, but as soon as we do, we will put it on the blog. Uh, thank you, everybody. Uh, thanks for Matt behind the boards. Thanks to Aaron and Chris and to everybody that called in. We'll see you next week here on Spooky South Coast.